want to invite you to uh, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter. I believe it's in uh, the Bibles there in the seats, page 1205, where uh, it's our intention this morning to pick up where we left off uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, if you remember, uh, Peter is uh, talking about uh, false teachers, and uh, he's pretty adamant about it, and uh, pick up in like verse uh, 17 is where we'll uh, dial back in. But Peter is warning us, you know, to be aware of false teachers because the truth of the gospel is invaluable, right? The, the, the message from God that, that God has given to us is, you know, um, beyond Beyond uh, value, if you think about this, it's uh, God's message to us is, uh, you know, the gateway into eternity. If I, if I were to come to you this morning and I were to say, listen, I'm going to give you a choice this morning. Okay, I'm going to give you a choice. You, you have to make this choice this morning. Uh, I have a million dollars in my pocket that I'd like to give you. Uh, make it 10 million. 10 million dollars that I'd like to give you. And you can choose that. Or you can choose a message that comes from God that will totally eliminate all of your sin and everything that stands between you and God and will guarantee you a place on the other side of this life in heaven. Which would you choose? Which would you choose? Have you ever thought that you're a carrier, you're a carrier of a message that's worth more than $10 million? I mean, if I gave you $10 million and asked you to, uh, to, to protect this for me, invest it, how serious would you be about taking care of it? But if God were to give you a message that has the power to put you in heaven for all of eternity, how serious would you be about taking care of that message and sharing that message because he means it for the whole world. I don't know about you, but I feel sometimes uh, like entrusted with something more valuable than $10 million that's been entrusted to me and to you. And I feel that my worth as a human being, since God entrusted this message to me, makes me very significant, more significant than a billionaire, more significant than Bill Gates. You feel that way about yourself? That God would entrust to you the message that can make you right with God and put you in eternity in a place called heaven forever and ever and ever. How precious. You know, like Peter says here, how great and how precious are the promises of God. How valuable. How valuable is the message that God has entrusted to us. And so Peter is, you know, really livid about false teachers about people who would pervert the message of God, about people who would use that message and uh, uh, put their own agendas on it and their own ideas into it. And these false teachers, uh, many of whom will always discourage you from reading the Bible on your own, lest you were to get the pure word straight from God, and encourage you instead to listen to them. 
can always tell a false teacher by whether or not they're encouraging you to get to know the message yourself. That you have in your hands a copy of the very word of God. And so these polluting, perverting, false teachers uh, are very annoying to Peter. And so he's livid. He says these people are like animals. He says they're like brute beasts, he says in verse 12. He says they, they live by uh, evil instincts, like an animal, verse 14. They, they live off of instincts. You know, they don't know the truth. They don't care about the truth. And uh, he calls them an accursed brood of people in, in verse 14. Peter's serious about this because why? Because the message is so precious. It's the only way to heaven. It's the only way to be right with God. It's the only way to have peace with our maker. And Peter realizes how valuable it is. And I want to suggest to you that the scary thing about our day is the trend toward tolerance. In our day, everything's about tolerance and ecumenical, let's all just get together and, and, and let's not fight for truth. In our day, people would rather be politically correct than biblically correct which is a really stupid thing, it seems to me. Sorry for my language. Because we only have a government that's good for 90 days at a time anyway. Who would care about being politically correct with this government? It's only good for 90 days. God's word is eternal. And will be the same forever and ever and ever. So why would we be more concerned to be politically correct than we are to be biblically correct? It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, the word of God stands forever. And so when it comes to the pure message from God, tolerance for anything less than the truth is a very bad evil. Tolerance for perversion of the truth is suicidal. In my um, class, uh, that, uh, I, I, this Discovering Trinity class, when people join our church, uh, I, I often like to um, point out that we do our church life in four columns. And uh, I thought I would share this with you because uh, not everybody comes to my class, so, but everybody needs to know this, all right? Here's the deal. I know you know, it's hard enough to get up on Sunday morning, let alone Saturday. But four columns, and the first column I call absolutes. There are some non-negotiable absolutes that I will fight you till the day I die. And uh, if we lose these absolutes, we won't be a church, we'll just be a club. There are some non-negotiable absolutes. Number one is that God exists. That he's a Trinitarian. This, you know, he exists in three, pe three persons. I gotta put my glasses on to see what I wrote. <clears throat> you know, God exists. That, uh, if, if God doesn't exist, we're all just fooling ourselves, right? Uh, these are non-negotiable absolutes. God creates. I'm so thankful for the worship this morning. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. When we get into our passage this morning, one of the things Peter's going to say is that people deliberately resist and forget God's creative power. You know, which is so true in our day. Uh, the Bible is God's word. I will fight you till the day I die. You join this church and you say, well, I think the Bible is just, you know, man's ideas of like, guess what? There's another church down the road be better for you. Because we're going to, I'll fight you till I die, you know. Jesus is the son of God. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. These are non-negotiable absolutes. Mankind has fallen. We got a problem. All people have a problem. Salvation comes by faith in Christ, not by good works. You know, these are non-negotiable absolutes, right? The second column, I say, is traditions. This church is 130-plus years old. So we got some traditions. Yeah, it was started by some Swedes. You know, they had some traditions. 
And uh, so, you know, we, we sing certain kind of music. It's kind of our tradition. All right. Uh, we live in Fairfield County. There's certain ways we do things because we live here. Uh, we're Baptistic, right? We're a Baptist church. Uh, we have a way of doing things and so on and so forth. The third column is needs. We're all here because we have needs, right? Why do we do church? Well, because we have needs. Well, what are we? We need to worship, right? If you're a believer, you need to worship. You need friends. You know, you need to learn, grow. Eventually, maybe if you're good looking, you'll need a wedding, you know? And after you get married, then you're going to need a nursery. Then you want a youth group and eventually you're going to need a funeral, right? So... <laughs> That's church life. I mean, it's what we do. Okay? And the last column is the programs. And the programs are basically, you know, what are we going to do to meet the needs, given who we are, but always based on these absolutes? Okay? So we need a place to meet. How are we going to make a budget? Who are the people we're going to hire? Who are the leaders we select? And all those kinds of things. Now, here's the deal. Absolutes never, 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 never change. Don't put anything in the absolute column that could ever change. Traditions change, but they change slowly. If you come here and you say, I don't like something about this church, I'm saying, great, you can get involved and you can change the traditions. You can change them, but don't try to do it overnight. You can change. You know, this church spoke Swedish for the first 50 years of its existence. It finally changed and tried English. And you know, it changed the tradition of the way that we do things, right? You can change, but it changed slowly. Needs are changing all the time, pretty regularly. Your needs are changing, right? And so the program is in constant motion. Whatever works. If you have a better idea than what we're doing, tell us. Let's try it and see if it works. Okay, so here's the deal. We're a narrow-minded church at the absolute end and a broad-minded church at the program end, right? Because I'll tell you what happens. Absolutes, compromise is a bad word. And that's what Peter's incensed about. You cannot compromise on the absolutes. Compromise is a good word over on the program end. We're going to spend the money on the senior citizens or the youth group. Well, guess what? We better compromise because we're all here together, right? When we make a budget. We're going to uh, you know, do this or do that, or how are we going to do We're going to pick a, uh, what do you call this, mauve carpet or, you know, a scrambled egg carpet like we had before, yellow and brown. Compromise is a good word, right, at the program end. But it's a very bad word at the absolute end. Okay? Now, what happens is, if we don't hold on to the absolutes, your traditions become your absolute. Think about it. If you don't hold on to the absolutes, your traditions become your absolute, and here's what happens. Churches fight about the wrong things. We start fighting over traditions because this is the way we've always done it kind of things. They don't really matter. The traditions will change, but they'll change slowly. But the absolutes have to be in place. And I, I, you know, I try to do my marriage the same way. I say to myself, there are some non-negotiable absolutes to have a good marriage. Like, I have to trust my wife. I don't know how to stay married without trust. If you told me something that made me think, oh, I can't trust my wife, I would have to work that out. I'd say, time out, stop everything. That's an absolute. I don't know how to be married to somebody I can't trust. So I'd have to work that out. But guess what? Barb grew up in one tradition, some family. I grew up in a different tradition, some other family, right? And in Barb's family, she never learned how to eat spaghetti properly. <laughs> it's true. No, it's really true. You know what she does? 
She puts the pasta in one bowl and the sauce in another and eats them separate. It's just wrong. <laughs> Everybody knows that, right? That's wrong. That's not how you eat spaghetti. You eat spaghetti like I do in my family where you mix it all together and then you eat it. My kids don't know how to, they don't know how to eat spaghetti. <laughs> Barb has some needs. Dave has some needs. When we get to the program end, are we going to spend the money on this or that? Are we going to buy this color car or that color car? Are we going to hang out with these friends or those friends? All of those kinds of things are compromisable. But you can't compromise on the absolutes or you have no marriage left. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. There are some non-negotiable absolutes and you cannot let them, they're worth fighting for. There are some things in church that are worth parting company over. And what Peter is so obsessed about, uh, upset about uh, here is um, this whole issue of these non-negotiable absolutes being compromised, the gospel being polluted with false ideas. And Peter realizes you can't lose the absolutes. And so he gets uh, a little cranked up about all of this, and um, he says that, you know, when you... When, when there are teachers without the absolutes, he says in verse 17, he says, these people are like springs without water. What good is a spring without water? It's pretty useless, right? You, if you're thirsty and you're approaching a spring and it doesn't have any water, he, he says, what good is a spring without water? People who make promises, but don't, the promises that they make don't deliver. People who claim to have the way to freedom and have the answers to life's problems, but are deceived themselves. And I'm going to tell you, when you believe the wrong thing, it does not matter how strong your faith is. You can have the strongest faith in the world, but if you don't believe the truth, it doesn't do you any good. Your faith is only as good as the object that you put your faith in. And if it's not the truth, you're in trouble. You're in deep weeds, and that's what Peter sees happening. Um, and so um, the truth really does matter. You'll notice that um, as you came in, I think you maybe saw the sign on this Saturday morning, November 2nd, uh, NEST, the New England School of Theology, is uh, hosting a seminar here in our church uh, on, you know, um, uh, does truth exist? Because uh, most young people are being taught that there is really no such thing as absolute truth. Everything's relative. And so this seminar is designed to equip people to be able to defend the fact that, no, there is such a thing as truth, and it can be known, and it can be defended, and, and it's our job to do that. Peter would be really happy to attend this seminar. Because why? Because people are thirsty for God. People want the truth, and the truth is really good news from God. And uh, people long for it. Uh, you might remember that Jesus met a woman at a well uh, in Samaria, and um, in the course of uh, conversation, he was talking about getting a drink and so forth, and in John chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus said, everybody who drinks this kind of water is going to be thirsty again, which is true, right? You have a drink and so on and so forth. Uh, you're always thirsty. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Whoever drinks the water, whoever drinks the truth that Jesus brings to us, will never thirst. Your life will either be an endless quest for satisfaction and for contentment, like we've been talking about all year, 
Or we come to Jesus and we find the water that indeed satisfies. Indeed, he says, the water I give will become in that person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The truth that Jesus brings to us, the message from God embodied in the person of Christ is truly a huge gift. And so Peter says that these false teachers, verse 17, are like mists, they're like clouds. In an agricultural society, you're very dependent on rain. And so a cloud would show up on the horizon and uh, look what he says in verse 17. And you're thinking, oh boy, it's going to rain, this is great. He says, these men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. In other words, the wind just blows the clouds right by and they don't drop any rain. It's a huge disappointment. Here's the promise that this is going to work, that this is going to satisfy our needs, and, and then the wind blows the cloud away and nothing comes of it. Blackest darkness is reserved for people who miss the truth or who are false teachers and not teaching the truth. And, uh, you know, I think this is significant for us to remember because uh, this is still going on today. There there are lots of false teachers. And, of course, with media and so forth, we have uh, lots of exposure to lots of false teaching. But the question that I always uh, get hung up on a little bit and and kind of uh, bothers me is, like, I can understand people who are false teachers and who get led astray and so on. But sometimes it really, I can't understand why is it that masses of people follow these people? Why why is it that so many people can be so deceived, you know, by less than the truth? And uh, verse 18, I believe that Peter speaks to this. And uh, it's important for us, I think, to kind of pick this verse apart and and understand what's going on here. First of all, he says, um, they mouth empty, boastful words. Uh, These false teachers are bold. They're not humble about what they're saying. They're convinced and they're bold and they're out there and and they're saying what they're saying and doing what they're doing. uh, But they're empty words. They're words that say nothing. They remind me of some political speeches. You you hear a political speech once in a while and you say, I just know there's not, not not an ounce of truth in that speech. And it's all just designed to deceive and to move us to do what the politician wants. And Peter says, well, how is it that these people gain a hearing and get a crowd? Well, they're bold, and they boast these uh, empty words, verse 18. They mouth empty, boastful words. And uh, it's so opposite, it seems to me, of the way uh, the biblical truth comes to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the apostle Paul said this. He said, when I came to you in Corinth there, brothers... I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I was resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and with trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on the very power of God. How different the Apostle Paul approached uh, sharing God's truth. The second thing it says there in verse 18, it seems to me, is that one of the reasons that there is such an appeal to false teaching is that it appeals to the lustful desires of the sinful human nature. The appeal is to the desires of the old nature. Now you remember in uh, the uh, the first chapter of 2 Peter in verse 4, 
uh, we read these words, that when you become a Christian, you receive a new nature. There's, an, uh, there's a whole new nature. That uh, Verse 4 is a, just the greatest verse. It says, uh, through these, through, God's, uh, through Jesus' glory and his goodness, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through those promises you may participate in the divine nature. The very nature of God begins to replace our old nature when we become a Christian. And all of a sudden, the things that used to appeal to our old nature no longer appeal. And the things that never appealed to our old nature all of a sudden begin to appeal to the, the, the new godly nature that's within us. And in that process, we are being transformed. We're being changed into the likeness of Christ. And so Peter says these false teachers, however, are constantly appealing to the old nature. Uh, probably the best example in recent years is the health and wealth gospel. We want to be healthy, we don't want to have any pain, and we want to be wealthy. And uh, there is a whole slew of people who preach that message that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy, and that's the essence of God's message to you. And if you listen to me and do what I say and send money, you will be healthy and wealthy, and so on and so forth. But it's just not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth. But how is it that these people get a crowd? Well, you can find out. Peter says, well, they appeal to the old nature, the sinful human nature. And then the third thing Peter says, how they get a crowd, is they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They go after the immature. They go after the young. Uh, the immature. And this is, again, um, uh, I think a, a very true statement. Um, uh, the issue is that false teachers uh, go after these young people, and uh, the seeds of false teaching are, are targeted in the schools and in the university. Uh, and, and the appeal, uh, verse 19, is freedom. Freedom. Look what it says. It says, they promise people freedom. They promise young people freedom. And that's uh, the appeal that's used. And so, again, if you think about this, um, the truth is that, you know, our old nature is corrupt. You can read about it in Galatians chapter 5, all the parts of our old nature. And um, it makes us an enemy with God. And uh, Paul tells us we're destined for a Christless eternity if we live by our old nature. And the only place we can make peace and have that new uh, nature imparted to us is at the cross in, in the exchange between uh, what the Lord did for us and our faith in what he did. But this issue of going after the immature and the young people and uh, uh, the targeting of schools and so forth and, uh, and this appeal of freedom, you know, everybody wants to be free. But again, the Bible's definition of freedom is different than what the world thinks. Um, and Peter says they promise people freedom, but they themselves are slaves of depravity. They are not free themselves to be able to give freedom to the next person. Uh, they're still searching for it themselves. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Uh, there's no freedom apart from uh, Christ, again. And so uh, many people think that freedom is being able to do whatever we want to do. But the truth is, freedom is having the freedom to be the person that God created us to be. Real freedom is the freedom to be the person that God originally created us to be. That's freedom. And when we have it and we, become, we begin to be who God created us to be, I mean, he created us to be like him. 
We were made in his image. His, who's freer than God to do whatever he wants? You know, and we were made to be like him and to enjoy that kind of freedom. But for that, we need a whole new nature. We need a transplanted um, nature. And uh, way back in the Old Testament, you might remember this in Ezekiel chapter 36, God said, there's a day coming when I'm going to give people a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit. I'm going to, I'm going to implant a new nature into people. You remember this way back in Ezekiel? Uh, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will be my people and I will be your God. We will be tight. There is a day coming, God says, when I'm going to change people's hearts. I'm going to put a new nature. I'm going to put a new spirit into people's hearts. And um, when Jesus was here, you might remember, he said, all the real issues of your life come from your heart. Mark chapter 7. All the issues of your life come from your heart. Now, we're always monitoring behavior. We're always thinking it's in the behavior. And uh, I don't know if you've ever, uh, you know, had some habit, bad habit, or some sin that you know, has marked your life and you've ever tried to change your behavior without changing your heart towards God, you see how powerless you are. The sin in your life is more powerful than your old nature. And it keeps you there. It keeps you in bondage because you need a new heart and because it's the heart that's the issue. And so um, it, it takes the very presence of God in order for us to find uh, the kind of freedom that God is offering us through the gospel, through the message of the cross. And it's uh, way back, years ago, God said, you know, someday that's going to be available to you. And today, that is available to us through faith in Christ and by his spirit. And so, so Peter talks about these people who uh, maybe have had some kind of religious experience, maybe have tasted the message of God, tasted uh, the things of God, because there's elements of truth. One of the reasons that I think people follow false teaching is because there's an element of truth. There's not a balance of truth. There's not the whole truth, but there's enough truth that people are attracted to it. And so look what Peter says here in the next couple of verses. These are tough verses. He says, if these people, if these false teachers have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in the world and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Now that's a, that's a heavy statement. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their back on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back in her wallowing in the mud. Now, there's a number of different places we could go. Uh, there's never enough uh, time to do everything, but um, one, you know, one of the places is in Hebrews. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 6 and in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, this is talked about. Um, in Hebrews chapter 6, we read these words, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened by the gospel, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss, they are crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. These are people who have tasted the message of God but never swallowed it. I think there's lots of people in churches today who have tasted the good things of God. They could tell you the story of the gospel. 
They've tasted what it would feel like to be forgiven. They've tasted something of the Spirit's presence in their life, revealing the truth to them. They've tasted, but they've not swallowed. And so it's not become a part of them. And, and, and the author of Hebrews and Peter is saying the same thing. If that's you and then you turn away, you're worse off than you were before you knew the truth. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, kind of the same thing. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifices for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And when we get to the third chapter, that's what Peter begins to talk about, this judgment that's beginning to, to form against the evil and against uh, the ungodliness of the world. And so, um, so Peter begins to talk about that and, and sets us up uh, to understand what's going to happen in the future. And uh, I love it that, you know, uh, when God talks about people in terms of an animal, he, he talks about us as sheep, right? Uh, Peter says, you know, the false teachers are like dogs and like pigs. But Peter says, no, uh, believers are more like sheep who recognize we need a shepherd, we need somebody to lead us. We need somebody we can trust. We need somebody we can depend upon. And we have swallowed the truth, and we have entrusted ourselves to the Savior and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're, you know, we're not like pigs. We're not like dogs that return to their vomit and so on and so forth. We're moving forward. We're following the shepherd, and he's leading us. And there's a huge difference. And uh, sheep, of course, are uh, known for how dependent they are upon a shepherd and how lost they would be without him. And three times Jesus told Peter himself, remember in John chapter 21, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Come on, Peter, feed my sheep. Just don't sit around and say that you believe me. Feed my sheep. Because why? Because Satan has a false gospel and he has false teachers and it creates false Christians. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talks about that. Let me just uh, quick read those uh, verses for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you're probably familiar with these words, um, but uh, here's, here's, what Peter's, uh, Peter, here's what Paul says about this. He says, uh, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him, totally sinless by the blood of Christ. But I'm afraid, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if somebody comes along and preaches to you a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, and by the way, that's always the way the cults do it. They always preach a Jesus, but it's a Jesus that's different than the Jesus of the Bible. And they'll talk about Jesus, and they'll affirm him, and they'll make you think, wow, this, this guy believes in Jesus but not the way that Jesus has been revealed, not as the only begotten Son of God, not as the Savior of the world, not as the Lord of the universe, and so on and so forth. And so way back in New Testament days, Paul's on to this, right? If somebody comes along and preaches to you a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, and you put up with it easily enough, I don't think I am in the least inferior to those so-called super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, uh, but I do have knowledge of the truth. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. False teaching. And uh, beware of that. People always try to get you to believe that they believe in the same Jesus you believe. And it's real easy to just go along with that. 
But you need to prod, you need to poke, you need to ask, you know, is this the absolute Jesus that I know? And so Peter is saying all of these things, all right, verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. He says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to what? Wholesome thinking. Wholesome thinking. What you believe determines what you think. And your thinking is extremely important. How you think really does matter. Because that will determine how you feel and that will determine the choices that you make. And uh, so Peter says, I'm writing these letters to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Why do you need to stimulate me to wholesome thinking? Because I forget. Because I forget. Because I live saturated in the world 24-7. And the world has a different message than the message of God. And I get worn down. And so Peter says, I'm writing this to stimulate your minds to wholesome thinking, to think the truth. And now, well, how are we going to do that, Peter? So here's what he says. I want to recall, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. That's the New Testament, the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament. Peter's saying, I want to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. How are you going to keep your mind thinking truth and, and being wholesome? Well, through the word of God, um, through the word of God. And, and Peter is, I think, especially talking about prophecy about the Lord's return and about the judgment that's coming. As he, In verse 3, uh, when we get there, he says, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers are going to come, scoffers following their own evil desires, and they're going to say, where is this coming that Jesus promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on like it has from the beginning. In other words, uh, just lose this idea that you're going to be accountable to God someday. And uh, these people deliberately set that aside. There are, there are 27 books in the New Testament, 27 different you know, books that make up the New Testament. Uh, 24 of the 27 make direct reference to the return of Christ. 24 of 27. Only three books in the New Testament are silent about the Lord's return. And so this is a huge, you know, everywhere, both in Old Testament and New Testament, anticipates this spectacular event of Christ coming back to judge the world. And uh, this is the blessed hope, you know, of all believers that the Lord is coming back. But false teachers deliberately ignore the promised return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so uh, there are many places in the Bible that, again, talk about this. Uh, you might write these down, uh, parallel passages in Jude, uh, verses 14 and 15, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 to 22, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, Daniel 12, 1, Joel, Amos, all talk about, you know, the second coming of Christ. It's, it's a key uh, teaching for the biblical worldview. And so when Peter uh, calls for wholesome thinking, he's thinking about, you know, uncorrupted and unadulterated um, teaching that's coming based on the scriptures. And so, uh, first and foremost, this is an absolute. Verse 2 is an absolute. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord through your apostles. Uh, the word of God is in the scriptures, through the prophets and the apostles. We have a sure word from God. It's a non-negotiable absolute. And uh, then in verse 3 and 4, he says, you know what, I just read that, you know, false teachers, uh, one of the big things they deny is the whole idea that Christ is coming back, that we're going to be accountable. And uh, you'll notice in um, verse 5, there's uh, two things that uh, are, are very characteristic of false teaching, and they're prevalent in our day, prevalent, I would say. 
Number one, verse five says this. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water by water. They deliberately forget creation. Now, for the last hundred years or so, you know, our culture has been so conditioned by the theory of evolution that there is this deliberate, intentional denial of the creation of God by the power of his word. Right? You're agreeing with me, right? I mean, you, you know that that's true, right? And so we have a worldview in where people deny, deliberately uh, cast aside the whole idea of creation, that you were made by God. And, you were crea and that creation came about, as we sang this morning from the 24th Psalm, you know, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Why is it his? Why isn't it ours? Well, because he made it. It's his. He made it. He created it. And how did he do it? By the power of his word. Let there be light. And bingo, there was light. You know. And the second thing, by these waters, here's the second thing, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. The second thing that people deliberately set aside is the idea of the flood, of the judgment of God, that the flood came upon the earth and wiped out everything except for Noah and his family. Uh, there were a bunch of us, Barb and I were down in uh, Pennsylvania yesterday at Sight and Sound with uh, people, 80 people from our church were down in Sight and Sound yesterday. Uh, it's a theater that uh, depicts uh, on a Broadway level uh, biblical accounts. And so they were doing Noah. And so here we sat for two and a half hours with the story of Noah being depicted in dramatic form and this whole business of how Noah, you know, took a stand and believed God. God says, look, there's going to be a flood. You better make a boat. And for 120 years, Noah worked at building a boat. And all the townspeople thought he was a moron, right? And so they depict all this in the drama. And, uh, and I just, I couldn't help but think that Jesus said, right? Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man coming back. Just like it was in the days of Noah, it's going to be. And I'll tell you what, you can have Noah's experience. All you have to do is go out and meet somebody and just explain to them that God is going to bring judgment on our world and see the response you get. It's just like in the days of Noah. Nobody fears it. Nobody believes it. People, Peter says people deliberately repress it, deny it, deliberately put it out of their minds that that could ever possibly happen. You know, and uh, in, in Noah's day, you know, people were mocking him. Hey, it's never rained. What do you mean? You're, you're crazy. And, and all the things that, that happened to him as a, a result of that. But these are the, the two things. Um, denial. And, um, and then you'll notice that the next verse says, um, uh, by the same word, by the word of God, by the powerful, all-powerful word of God, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, are being reserved for fire, uh, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. This judgment by fire is not for believers, not for the godly, it's for the ungodly. And, you know, there's a great doctrine in the Bible about the rapture of the church. The true church is taken out of the world before the wrath of God comes down on the world. Why? Because Jesus already took the wrath of God for us. Jesus already paid that price for us. It's, it's what salvation means. To be saved means to be saved from the wrath of God that we all deserve. 
And uh, Jesus took that for us. And so we will never experience the wrath of God. But you'll notice that um, uh, this is a deliberate attempt to ignore uh, what's happened in the past, God's word, the creation, which screams of his uh, power, and, um, and, and the flood that came that uh, spoke of the judgment. And here Peter's telling us there's a judgment coming, uh, and this time by fire. And I, I don't think it's so hard to imagine our world being consumed by fire. There are many places in the Bible that talk about, uh, associate fire with the end judgment. And um, if you think about it, you know, we're surrounded by billions of stars. They're like flaming missiles. And, uh, you know, they could just fall to earth, they could intersect with us, and that'd be it. Uh, the core of the earth is uh, estimated to be, by science, scientists, uh, uh, better than 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, it's a molten core at the core of the earth, and, and uh, the thing that protects us from it, there's a crust around the whole uh, earth, uh, the, about 10 miles thick, that keeps us from all being toast, literally, right? And, and then, of course, there's the whole thing that uh, everything that you see is made up of atoms. And uh, in Colossians, the same word, uh, Paul says, the same uh, powerful word of God that made the creation is the same word that's holding all the atoms together. And that's nu nuclear uh, energy comes from, you know, breaking atoms apart. And, and since everything's made up of atoms, if you think about it, the, the whole universe is just like a, a ticking nuclear bomb. Because everything could just blow apart by the uh, intense uh, force that's wrapped up in our atoms and so on and so forth. And so uh, what Peter's telling us, look, by the same word that created everything, by the same word that brought the judgment of the flood, by that same word, the present heavens and the present earth that we're living on are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment, the destruction of the ungodly. And uh, there's lots that we could say about that. There's many things in the Bible. You know, there's two books of the Bible that, not, that don't get preached on a lot, and it's Genesis and Revelation. It's the beginning and the end. And people are like all in the middle trying to get moral issues and all of that kind of stuff. But man, this whole universe was created by God, and God tells you how it's going to end. And uh, gives us an escape, just like he created the ark for Noah and his family. And uh, there was only one door that led to that ark, you know. And, and the door that leads to uh, salvation is Jesus Christ. And, and so I just want to suggest to you this morning that, you know... Um, for true believers, there will never be an experience of the wrath of God because Jesus took it for us. And that's what it means to be saved. And the message that came from God of salvation, the message of the gospel uh, that came to us embodied in the person of Christ, I am the truth, Jesus said, uh, that is so valuable and so precious. And you've been entrusted with it. And I've been entrusted with it. And, and we are way better off than billionaires because of the message of the truth. And so don't allow it to become perverted. Don't allow it to become polluted. Uh, the message of the truth is worth fighting for. It's a non-negotiable absolute. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we have your word. I'm so thankful for Peter writing this to stimulate our thinking. So many of us think our thoughts are our own. So many of us think these are our, our thoughts, but the truth is, there's an enemy who's always trying to dissuade us from the truth. And the things we think, they either come from you or they come from him. And uh, I, I pray that you would help us, like we're told in Proverbs, not to lean on our own understanding, but to trust in you in all of our ways. And uh, to acknowledge your truth and to do, as Peter said, to stimulate ourselves to wholesome thinking 
by uh, uh, marinating ourselves in the Old and New Testament. And especially as we get into thinking about uh, the future and prophecy and what's coming. I just pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, make us alert and mindful and that we would be able to grasp the truth and uh, that would lead, Father, to wholesome thinking uh, about our living, about our sharing, about our priorities, about what's important between now and the time we see you and uh, that it would uh, inform us and, and condition us, Father, to live according to your will. For Jesus' sake, amen.